0: Good evening, and welcome to episode one of The Grateful American. My name is Hugh McDougal, and I'm happy to be here for our first episode. And this is a message from the Commandant of the United States Marine Corps on today, November 10th, 2020, the 245th birthday of the United States Marines. If there were a watchword for 2020, the shortlist would certainly include change, uncertainty, and adaptation. This new, di- this new dynamic and uncertain environment has impacted how we recruit and train Marines, deploy aboard ship, and even how we honor our Corps' hallowed traditions. But adapting to change and uncertainty is nothing new for Marines. It is what we have done for 245 years, and it is what is expected of us, the nation's force in readiness. Where others see challenges, Marines see opportunities. We We don't take a knee. We will always be ready to answer the nation's call no matter the crisis. In a world of seemingly relentless change and uncertainty, some things remain constant. Our core values, honor, courage, and commitment These values are the very heart of our ability to be the most ready when the nation is the least ready. It's honor that gives us an uncompromising sense of personal integrity and accountability. Courage that allows us to face any circumstances. And with ironclad resolve to do what's right and commitment that binds us together as a family and drives us toward excellence. And while our core values might never change. The way we give life to them requires constant vigilance. This year's national conversations about race remind us that we must all do better to embody our service's values. Commemorating the 245th birthday of our Corps offers us a chance to reflect on our history. We who serve today stand upon the shoulders of giants. While this year's many challenges are significant and unique, they are unprecedented, and it is more, It is important to remember our nation and corpse have endured difficult times in our past. This year, for example, marks the 75th anniversary of brutal battles in the Pacific, when soldiers of the sea defined the term uncommon valor on the black sands of Iwo Jima. The 70th anniversary of bitter fighting at Incheon, and the chosen Reservoir. Chosen Reservoir. Yeah. Fifty-five years since Marines landed at Danang, and a decade since our struggle with the Taliban in the Hemlin River Valley. We remember the service and sacrifice of all Marines and honor the legacy passed down through our generations. Our continuing obligation is to honor their legacy by making meaningful compre- contributions to what they started. From the past, we draw strength, pride, and responsibility to carry on the warfighting heritage our predecessors built. We must also recognize our tradition and continuous adaptation, one that should inspire our current force modernization and innovation efforts, as has been the case in the past. Today's threats require us to fight as a cohesive team and our ability to succeed will depend on the honor, courage, and commitment of each individual Marine. From recruiting individuals of great intelligence, strength, spirit, and diversity, to evolving how we train, educate, and mentor Marines throughout their careers, we remain dedicated to developing the world's finest war fighters guided guided by our core values. In a year of significant change and uncertainty, I'm reminded of the words American novelist John Dos Passos in times of change and danger when there is a quicksand of fear under men's reasoning a sense of continuity with generations gone before can stretch like a lifeline across the scary present never forget what you do today becomes a foundation of foundation for generations of marines that will follow There is no challenge we cannot overcome together by holding fast to our core values. Happy 245th birthdays, Marines. Semper Fidelis. David H. Berger, General U.S. Marine Corps, Commandant of the Marine Corps. And with that, that is the reading from the Commandant of the Marine Corps to the United States Marines on their 245th birthday, 10th of November, 2020. And with that is what leads us into the first episode of myself, Hugh McDougall, uh, in the Grateful American podcast, something that I've been thinking about for a while. And I'm sure many of the people that are going to listen to this listen to myself and Garrett Hutchins on Mainly Stupid, which is our other podcast. And in our my first guest um, holds a... Holds a spot in my heart, seeing that he's my wife's father, or, yeah, he is my wife's father, and uh, so I'll introduce him, and uh, with me tonight is 1st Sergeant Fred Levine, retired USMC.
1: How are you? I'm doing good. (laughs) (laughs) Now, this commandant, he had a good speech this year, every single year on the, the birthday of the Corps. The, the current commandant will write a speech it goes out to the the entire corps yeah
0: yep so I I was <laughs> last night I was going through things I wanted to i I wanted to open up with something like that Mm-hmm. and the first thing I came across was was Jim mattis's speech general mattis to the Marines the first marine uh, regiment in March of two thousand three before they invaded Iraq yeah and then later on, I was thinking more and more about it being the Marine Corps' birthday and and just kind of what that means to me as a, as, a, as a civilian. I never served, but this is the reason why I started this podcast is I want it to be my way of showing respect and honor and all of those values that sure. Marines and other armed forces hold so present. But out of all of them, I've never met a group of more... Dedicated servicemen than the Marines. It's just incredible the traditions they hold.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Mean the biggest meaning the birthday oh, yeah. and how every and in my reading I found how every year they. It's it's the same the cake with the cake cutting ceremony sure. and how it goes to the guest of honor and then the oldest Marine and then he gives it to the youngest Marine. Yep, exactly. And just all of those things. Um what was your first birthday in the Marine Corps that you that you can remember?
1: All right, well, uh, I was uh, I went in the Marine Corps in 1980 and uh at that time the corps was 205 years old. Yeah. All right. So, I'm a pretty old decrepit <laughs> guy sitting here. Uh yeah, uh, 205 years old. So, that was would have been in uh let's see. 1980. July, it like October. It would have been, uh, yeah, 1980. So I'm trying yeah. to think where, where, when when I came in and boot camp and then. So the first one was in November of 1980. Yeah. And I think it was in uh, Meridian, Mississippi, is where I was at. Okay. And that was my first Marine Corps ball. So. Now. And, yeah, and, and real quick here, yeah. It, it don't matter where yeah. you are, you know. Uh, you you know, you can. You know, you can be in a combat zone. You can be, you know, out in the field. You can be deployed on a ship. You can be anywhere, and there will be a time. You know what I mean? During that day, where that the present commandant will read his birthday message. They'll also read uh, General Lejeune's birthday message. That is read. That that speech that he sent out to the entire Marine Corps. I believe was around 1925. That is read also. I believe it's after the uh, the commandant speech. Yeah. But that same speech is read every single year, you know, and uh, it's a pretty good speech. And you talk about traditions, yeah. So, kind
0: of, well, now we'll roll back a little bit. Um, Introducing you, you know, where are you from? Where where did where did it start for you? You know, where did you grow up? That type of thing. Then we'll get into your. Okay. your career a little bit?
1: Um, well, my father was in the Air Force in uh, the early 60s uh, during uh, John F. Kennedy's you know, short time as president. Uh, he was also in Strategic Air Command. He was a boom operator mm-hmm. on the old KC-97s in flight refueling tankers. Yep. And uh, uh, he was in a Cuban Missile Crisis. And right after that, uh, he did his four years. He got out. And I was in Ohio. That's where I was born. And then... Uh, we moved to uh, Rye, New Hampshire. And then so I did first grade, actually halfway through first grade, all the way through fifth grade. The first half of first grade was at a Catholic school. Yeah. Which prepared me for Paris Island. <laughs> <laughs> you know, a little yeah. did I know at the time. Um, and nothing against Catholics, I'm a devout Catholic. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the, uh, from there, uh, fifth grade, we uh, moved to Colorado right after that. Yeah. I lived there for about, five six years and then uh, I did my junior and senior year of high school at Trape Academy mm-hmm. in Kittery Maine and uh, graduated high school in 1980 and uh, immediately went into the Marine Corps yeah a couple bumps along the way but uh it, what kind of brought me to this point is going way back when I was a young child my grandparents you know they had seven kids yeah uh, three boys all three went in the military you know my father in the Air Force I had a uh, an uncle who uh, is very, very special. He uh, uh, was in the Army in Vietnam the first of the ninth. He was a door gunner mm-hmm. and uh, first calf. And I had an uncle in the Navy who uh, about a year ago or so, you know, passed. And uh, so I was raised in a really patriotic family, which during that time, you know, it was during Vietnam, the country was really in turmoil. You know what I mean? Patriotism wasn't really such a big, yeah. you know deal. It wasn't um, the
0: ticker tape parade. Oh,
1: gosh, no. No, it was it was terrible. It really tore the country up. And, uh, you know, but still, our, our family was very patriotic. I was yeah. raised, you know, that way. And uh, to this day, you know, I still believe it. So I knew at a very young age that I'm going to go into the military. Yeah. And uh, I think when I hit about maybe mm, maybe 14, 15, 16 years old, I pretty much settled it's going to be the Marine Corps. So,
0: that's where it all began.
1: Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> I, uh, when, uh, when I just, uh, I came, I think it was just before I graduated high school, and I had been going to the recruiter, yeah. you know, for like a year prior to that. And um,
2: it,
1: when I was uh, about a month or so from graduating high school, I went down the recruiter was going to go ahead and enlist. And I was like on a delayed entry program for a month or two and then yeah. go in. I didn't want to wait a year, you know. I wanted to go in immediately, and uh, you know, zero three in the morning. You know, the recruiter picks me up, or I meet him at the. I think I met him in uh, the recruiting office in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. We drive all the way up to uh, Portland, Maine, for the uh, the MEPS physical, yeah. you know, which is is a whole day. I mean, you got ASVAB. Back then, we did ASVAP testing, and then you know, the complete physical for enlistment, and then boom, you're in, you know. And uh, I failed the, failed the physical. So I was devastated. This ain't going to work. You know what I mean? I mean, uh, I don't freaking think so. Yeah. You know? Yeah. uh, So I really didn't know what to do now. The recruiter uh, went the following week, 300 I'm back in the recruiting office in Portsmouth, right? We drive all the way up to Portland, and what they wanted to do is get me through MEPS again, see if they can slip me through. You know what I mean? But the freaking nurse recognized me from the week prior, says, what is he doing here? Yeah, he already failed. You know, so shit, I failed again. There's nothing we can do now. And uh, it was for hypertension. Really? Yeah. You know, I've I've had it for, you know, one form or another, you know, pretty much my whole time in a career, career in the Marine Corps. You know, but, you know, you're in shape, you're a stud, you know, there's no issues. It's just hereditary, I guess. I don't know. But they weren't going to take me. So I had to get what they call a a, BoMed waiver, which okay. is a Bureau of Naval Medicine waiver, and I had to go to a civilian doctor, and they took pictures and got another physical, and then they submitted up to, I don't know, whoever the big Navy doctors are, and, and they decide you know, yes or no, and I got uh, some uh, recommendation letters from my employer because I was working for a Marine at the time, yeah, Peter Rice. Who uh, was a uh, the owner of the Dolphin Striker in Portsmouth, mm-hmm. which is why I worked my, my two years in high school, and he wrote me a nice recommendation, and you know, uh, and then he came back and it was approved, yeah. And so, yeah, guess what? I'm going to the Marine Corps. So I enlisted, and, you know. There we go. Yeah.
0: <laughs> now, looking back on that, what do you think you would have ended up doing? Would you have tried to join another branch of the military, or would you have, or would you have gone a different route?
1: Gee, that's a good question, and I'm sure glad I didn't have to go through it to yeah. figure out what, a, what it would have been, you know what I mean?
0: Because it, se- it seems like, you know, from as long as I've known you, that there was never any question that you were going to get out of high school and you were going to go in the military. Yeah. And it was going to be the Marine Corps, and there was no deviating you from yeah. that course. And, and that kind of seems, everybody that I've ever met that is in, that is a Marine, that was the same. It wasn't like, well, I was a screw-up for two years after I got out of high school. It was they get out of high school, they join the Marine Corps, and then they go, you know, whether you go. they, do, whether they yep. do four years or they do 20. Sure. There was no in-between. Right. You know, I've known, and this isn't me shit-talking other branches of service because they're all respected, Ed, but... You, you hear some guys well they get out of high school and they go work for two years and then they join the army or yeah. you know and that's fine, yeah. but everybody I know that's marine you know it was graduate Friday on a bus at Paris Island <laughs> Monday. it seems yeah. like you know what i mean
1: yeah or they got a, they got a single goal you yeah. know what i mean and, and they make you know I've known uh, uh marines that you know they go on a delayed entry program, you know what I mean? Yeah. And so it might be six, seven, eight, nine, ten months or whatever before you actually ship, yeah. you know, before you ship down to uh, boot camp. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's a single goal. I mean, I don't know. I, you know, over the years, I, I can't tell you how many times I've had somebody from other services come up to me and said, you know, I almost joined the Marine Corps, <laughs> you know? Yeah. I'm thinking – yeah, but you freaking didn't. Yeah. You know, so, <laughs> you, know, you know, why are you telling me now? Yeah. You know, that's nice. You know, what did you do? Well, I was in the Army. I was a 53-450, you know. Yeah. I don't know. Lug nut, freaking technician, whatever, <laughs> motor T. And God bless him, you know, yeah. because, hey, the the guy, you know, for an enlistment or whatever and gets an honorable discharge, he did something that was bigger than himself, you know. I'm on board with that. But, uh, yeah.
0: Marines There's no are better,
1: different. as far as anybody joining the service, whether
0: it's, not even it could be public service. It could be sure. a fireman or, oh, gosh, a, or yeah. a law enforcement officer. Absolutely. anybody that has a, that bit of self sacrifice yeah. in them to put themselves before others yeah. deserves any amount of respect. They're you know sheepdogs, I mean? exactly. They're sheepdogs, and they're not yep. they're not going to just stand idle by, right? And and that's kind of you know I'll jump to me a little bit, yep, just to fill in the new listeners and people that may already know, but um, growing up, I was in the same kind of boat. I had a very patriotic family. Both my grandfather served in the U.S. Navy. Countless friends and family. I had an uncle in the U.S. Navy. Um, and that was always something that was, I was always interested in those careers and hearing those stories and and learning about, like, U.S. history in school was my favorite subject. Oh, yeah. It was the, the only thing I, I excelled at and later on in life if with physical ailments and stuff like that joining the military just wasn't going to happen for me sure. and it's always been just that part in the back of my head something I wish I did yeah. and starting this podcast this grateful american podcast kind of it's almost it's starting to become my way of giving back to those people and hearing their stories and and obviously this is the first episode and I hope we do a thousand episodes. Sure. And yeah. um it's just it's an honor and a pleasure to have you on as my first guest to do that.
1: Man, I'm honored. And Man, uh absolutely.
0: So I, so you've joined the, you joined the Marine Corps, you go through boot camp at Paris Island. Yes I if, did. If you want to tell us a little bit about that experience. Sure. Um if there's moments that stand out <laughs> <laughs>
1: Yeah, every single minute for 11 weeks. Um, the uh, m- recruits who enlist in the Marine Corps, if you live east of the Mississippi, you go to Paris Island. Or if you're a WM, a woman Marine, yeah. you go to Paris Island. If you live west of the Mississippi, you go to Marine Corps Recruit Depot, San Diego. Yeah. Um, you know, they 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 make fun of San Diego recruits, you know, like the Hollywood Marines. But... And of course, Paris Island has a really storied history. You know what I mean. And not all of it's good. Yeah. And um, but I was uh, Parasol Island has that mystique. Mm-hmm. But the training is the same. All right, if you yeah. if you become a marine in San Diego, you're just as good as a marine, and you know, came out of Paris Island. Just different so. oceans on the coast. Yeah, right? there you go. You know, different different environment, different uh, you know, a little bit uh, the weather's a little nicer in San Diego. Yeah. But uh, yeah, so. Uh, I went to Paris Island. Um, (laughs) It was my father and my Uncle Barry, who's the Vietnam veteran. He, they uh, took me to Portland when I was going to ship. And they put you in this uh, government hotel or whatever. This is what they did then. I don't know what happens now. but And, uh, you know, they give you this meal voucher or something for Chow. And, you know, that was it. Said goodbye. And they left. Slept there. Got up the next morning. Got on a bus. They took us down to uh, the airport, got on an airplane, and then we uh, flew to uh, New York City. Okay. You know, that was the first stop. Now, all right, I'm a Mainer. Okay. Is this
0: a, your first time on an airplane?
1: Uh, no, I no. was in Civil Air Patrol when okay. I was a kid, so I've, I've flown before. This is my first time in an airliner. Okay. Yeah. So I was uh, one of three Marines from the state of Maine that was shipping. That day. Okay. Um, me, one other guy, and a WM. And uh, this other guy, this this little story will make sense here in a minute. The other guy was holding our records. And this is a big, huge, thick envelope that has all our enlistment papers, this, that, everything you need when you get to...
0: birth certificate, uh, you
1: know. Yeah, you know, whatever, you know, this is your paperwork, this yep. is your life now. And he was in charge of holding on to that. Okay, so... With that said, so, uh, we landed in New York city and all of these gangsters and long haired criminal looking, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. People got on the plane and stuff and I'm thinking, Oh geez, you know, I mean, I was kind of, uh, raised in, uh, uh you know, suburban, rural, you know, white America for the most part. And, uh. And I don't think I've ever seen so many black people in my entire life at one yeah. time. You know what I mean? And uh, this isn't a racial issue; it's just it's a cultural issue. Yeah, you know, says, "Oh, this is interesting." You know, gee, I hope you don't freaking stab me because yeah. you know these guys—they they got jewelry and tats and yeah, you know, some mean-looking guys and stuff. It's just wow, that's you're something. from Maine. Yeah, I'm from it's, Maine. It, it you know still I mean? happens to me. Yeah, yeah. It was just it was different, and uh, and I wasn't—I didn't know that they were going to. Uh, where I was going, you yeah. know what I mean? Anyway, the next uh, stop we took off from New York, we went to uh, Charleston, South Carolina, and then you go to uh, like a small receiving part of the terminal, whatever, and a Marine corporal goes ahead and checks all the paperwork, this, that, and everything else, and, you know, and then from there um, you're supposed to get on a bus and they'll take you from Charleston straight into uh, Paris Island. Now, keep in mind, you started traveling early in the morning, all mm-hmm. right, and it's it's by now it's like, I don't know, 2,300 you know, midnight, whatever. And, uh, it turns out that, remember I said the guy that was carrying all our paperwork and stuff? Yeah. Well, the WM, she gets segregated. She goes her own way. Right. And now this guy, for whatever reason, who has my paperwork, he gets pulled. Something's up. He, he's not going to Paris Island. I don't know what it was. And all of a sudden now I get shoved this envelope. that's mine. Yeah. Okay. And. I'm not supposed to be holding onto this thing. He's supposed to be holding onto it. You know what I mean? And, uh, so anyway, I'm, I'm hanging onto it and, you know, I get on the bus and we head for uh Paris Island. And by now it's about three in the morning. Okay. So you figure you're mentally screwed up to begin with from yeah. lack of sleep and, you know, anxiety and, you know, fear and of the unknown, and this, that, and everything else, yeah. you know, exactly the way we want you to be. Yeah. And, uh, we go across the big causeway, mm-hmm. you know, from the gate. We go across the big causeway, and they pull up in front of the receiving barracks. This receiving barracks back then was, we used to call them the White Elephants. They're just uh, the old World War II wooden barrackses, And, it I mean, we're talking totally wood. You can see the rafters. Mm-hmm. They got the wooden floors, you know. And uh, they had these little school desks. And uh, when you uh, introduced to a drill instructor there on the bus you uh you find yourself I and mean, you can't remember how you got there because i don't know you know if somebody pushed you or you just magically flew yeah you know they just uh they introduce themselves in a very kind
2: you know <laughs> nurturing
1: man nurturing <laughs> you know if yes Guy, welcome. I, you're gonna love it here.
0: You could definitely see the sarcasm oh my coming God. out of here. Yeah. Right
1: now. <laughs> <laughs> you uh, they got the yellow footprints, the famous yellow footprints. Yep. And uh you get on them and you're standing there. And then uh, it comes time to pick up the the I manila envelopes, yep. you know. And s- some of these recruits, you know, were like the ones from New York City. This guy had like a stack of them because there's like fifty two yep. people from New York City that's going to the Marine Corps, you know. And then you yep. had uh you know, dumbass from Maine, you know, standing there. Yeah. And uh, so drill instructor's calling out a name, you know, calling out, calling out, who are you, where are you at, where are you at, you know, so they think they got somebody missing because they can't find that envelope. You yeah. know, that's because I was holding it. And a drill instructor comes over, and he looks at me, and I'm holding the envelope, and says, who are you? And he grabs this thing, and he says, you're not supposed to have this, yada, 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 you know, uh, I'm thinking, oh, man, I, I screwed up already. Yeah. You know, I don't need this right now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know? Uh, it was like, sir, the other recruit was pulled at Charleston something. You yeah. know what I mean? And, you know. Babbling your way through. That's it. it. So I was done. That was it. But uh, receiving was a pretty unique experience because, uh, yeah, that was the first time I was probably more scared in my entire life. Yeah. You know, because – just the, the violence, the uh, the intensity, the uh, the verbal abuse, you know, and you had to sit at his desk and you had to do, you know, a bunch of administrative mm-hmm. things and, you know, and you try not to That's four o'clock in the morning. Oh, my God, after yeah. After you've been up. For exactly. You know, and you're just. And you're right you're where they toast. want you. Yep, exactly. You're toast. And then uh, we finally put us in Iraq and uh, I don't know, it felt like maybe. Five ten 10 minutes of sleep, yep. you know, and then boom, you're up and you know. Now yeah. when you,
0: and I, you've told me this before, but when you get to Paris Island the first week or days or however long it is, their one goal is to rip you down to, yeah. to just a, you're just basically a, a body. Right. You, you don't think for yourself anymore. You don't talk for yourself anymore. You are a Marine Corps recruit.
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, it's uh that the very first
0: we call it a phase phase i
1: guess is what yeah. they call forming yeah and that's usually uh, back then it was like 3 4 days of forming and that's just uh you know you're talking that's uh you've already met your drone instructors you're in a squad bay now and uh all the administrative things you know the the stress the violence the the the, the verbal abuse the mm-hmm. you know the speed the you know, everything has to be done, you know, perfect. And it's just, it's, it's relentless. Yeah. You know, and then after forming, you begin first phase and first phase is when you're actually now, you know, the intensity is still there, nothing stops, but now they're starting to teach you. Mm -hmm. So forming kind of sets up, you know, uh, it doesn't feel like it at the time, but being a drone instructor, you know myself, yeah. I, it, it makes a lot of sense to me. It kind of sets you up for success to move into first phase. So it's like you said, they break you down to nothing. You're scared. Okay, yeah. now let's very slowly start piece it back. Together. Piece of it back together. You know what I mean. And it's just it's progressive yeah. as it moves through the cycles. And uh, and it's not to make you a robot. It's not to take away your you know your your, your personality. It doesn't dehuman dehumanize you. Yeah, that, that's not the purpose of it. But it's to break you down to where everybody in that squad bay is equal. Yep. You know? You're you are every one of you is a piece of shit. <laughs> you know? It's just nobody's a bigger piece of shit than somebody else. You're you know what I mean? You're all, you know, I say that facetiously, but you know, everybody is equal. You yep. know, you're basically nothing. And if you want to join my core, all right, this is what you gotta endure. And uh it it, it Just like anything, you know, adversity, yeah, you know, breeds strength and and confidence, Mm -hmm. yeah, you know. So, the uh, uh, that you know, that's that's a philosophy behind it, you know, yeah. Because when you come out the other end, you know, you're gonna be a hell of a lot more better than you were when you went in in the beginning, you know, and everything, so. But uh, and there's a whole lot of tricks and stuff. Yeah. Not tricks, but I mean, there's a whole lot. There's a whole lot. There's a reason for everything they do. Yeah. You know.
0: And, and you probably a- still find those reasons even now, I'm sure. After yeah. After 40 years. Sure. You know. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Yeah.
0: Um, now, so you you get through. We'll fast forward a little bit. You, you're towards the end of your boot camp. And, yeah. you know, one of the things everybody that's a Marine goes through is the crucible which I've done reading. Was it the same when you went through?
1: No, no, they didn't have that when I went through. Um, we had what's called uh, MST. Okay, I think it was called MST. IST. It's uh, infantry skills training. Okay, because uh, the, the Marine Corps, once you graduate from boot camp, uh, and you're given your title, and you you know you earned your title, you earned your eagle, globe, and anchor. Yeah. And you've also been given the skills to be a rifleman, okay? Because right? every Marine is a rifleman. Yeah. Whether you cook, whether you're a computer programmer, whether you're uh, an F eighteen pilot, you yeah. know what I mean. You're a rifleman. Every Marine. So, when uh, back then you just go through, uh, we went through uh, what's called IST, and that's a week of infantry training. Mm-hmm. In addition to the, uh, you know, th- that builds upon all the skills we learned firing a rifle during the range week or uh, second phase, um, which is two weeks, by the way, the the rifle range. But uh, that's that was it. Now they have the crucible where it's, uh, I think it's like three days, four days. You know, you, you have uh, two MREs, you know, yeah. 48 hours or whatever, no sleep. I mean, it's, it's a pretty good deal. And it's all team-building exercises yeah. that are built around um, or designed to simulate somehow an event that happened yeah. in the course past okay you know what I mean so this was a famous battle this was a marine who did such and such such and such yeah. and they kind of mirror that over to this particular obstacle that you can only get through it by yeah. you, as a team you know what I mean and so it, that's uh the crucible is a a pretty good idea you know and it came I think it came out in Sometime in the early to mid nineties, I okay. think, we had a, a commandant, General Kulak, that uh, came up with it. Okay. And uh, at the very end, you, at the very end of that, when you're, you know, sleep deprived and you're starving and you know you're weak and, you know, just totally wiped out, you uh, throw your gear on and they hump you about ten or fifteen miles, back to the uh, main side. And then they have an Eagle Globe and Anchor ceremony. Yeah. And that's when the drill instructor will take an Eagle Globe and Anchor and he'll put it in your hand. You know what I mean? It's pretty cool. Okay. It wasn't like that with me. Not, not back when, when yeah. I went through. But, yeah, that's. Uh, so you graduate boot camp. mm mm-hmm. um, Where do you go from there? Uh, usually you're going to go to your, uh, what they call an A school. Okay. Or what we used to call an A school. And that's whatever MOS that you're either selected for mm-hmm. or you enlisted for, they're going to send you to school to uh, to get proficient in that MOS. Then you go out to the fleet okay. and, uh, you know, perform your job. That's your job in the Marine Corps. Um, mine was uh, – I put in – and I was really stupid. I shouldn't have done this. I should have just went infantry, yeah. you know what I mean, to, to, to get it done and over with. and um, Or looking back on it, yeah. I think that would have been a, a great MOS. But – I thought I'd want to learn a skill while I was in, so I picked aviation. Mm-hmm. I've always enjoyed aviation. Yeah. And uh, unfortunately, though, I was uh, oh, i was aviation all right, but I was aviation supply. Okay. You know, I did not like that at all. I did good. I did well, you know what I mean? But it's really not what I wanted to do. And uh, that was down in Naval Air Station, Meridian, Mississippi. It was okay. a naval school down there, and that's where we learned. And uh, the sailors—they call them aviation storekeepers, Marines—they call them just aviation supply. And uh, yeah, being a Marine right out of boot camp. All right, so you're already a freaking whack job. Yeah. Okay. Get that out there in the open. Um, you're 18 years old. You just got done with Marine boot camp, and here's this sailor, same age as you. You know what I mean? And we used to have some really rough and tumble times. It was just. <laughs> That was a lot of fun. I mean, I can't tell you how many, you know, white Dixie cups, the the hats the yeah. us wear. I can't tell you how big of a collection we had in the Marine Barracks. We would just we just grab oh, them. Oh, we just grab them and run. You know what I mean? And uh, we were in such good shape. Yeah. There's no way they can catch us. But uh, yeah, so that was uh, how long was that? Maybe ten weeks, nine weeks, something like that. Ten yeah. weeks, I think it was at school, and got done with that, and then. Uh, I reported to Marine Corps Air Station, Yuma, Arizona. And when I got there at Yuma to check in, they gave me a choice. I can either go to station, meaning I'd be on the base yeah. working, or we got an opening in VMA 513, which was a Harrier squadron. And the, the this kid behind the desk, this Lance Corporal, whatever he says, you know, if you if you stay here, you don't have to worry about deploying. You don't have to go overseas. You don't da da da. But if you go to VMA five thirteen, you're probably going to go on a ship. You're probably going to. I'll take five thirteen. All right. So I went to a fleet yep. squadron right off the bat, and that was did that for uh, almost six years. Yeah. There in Yuma, shipboard deployments. Uh, been all over the world during that time. Um.
0: Yeah, I mean. Somebody met looking your, back on yeah. it, probably some of the best days of your life. A lot of them were, yeah. a lot of them were,
1: you know, I met your mother-in-law there, Yeah. you know, she's from Yuma. And, uh, yeah, it was very, very interesting. I, I didn't really like my job. Yeah. So whenever I finish up or do something, I would leave my little section I had in the corner of maintenance control and go out and the hangar deck and, you know, grab a wrench and, yeah. you know, have some mechanic teach me something. And, uh, so I, I enjoyed being around the airplanes. Now, what? Excuse my ignorance, but no. what what is a Harrier's
0: purpose? Oh, uh, it's Harrier's close squadron. air support. Okay. Yep.
1: It's a V-stall, vertical short takeoff and landing. Okay. That's the uh, the jet that takes off like a bird, you know, yep. straight up, and hovers, and okay. Yep. It Harriers. So yeah, and these were the A models. So these were the first ones the Marines bought from Britain. Okay. And uh, yeah, they were they were a handful to fly. Yeah. I, I think we had when I was there. I want to say. Four four crashes, maybe. Wow. Two deaths. Wow.
0: Yeah. So you do that, you, so you're there for six years? Yep. Re-enlisted once. And you're married now?
1: Yeah, got married in uh, 1984. Okay. There. And I uh, was there for about another, about a year and a half. And then uh, volunteered to go to the drill field. Yep. To
0: be a drill instructor. So you head out of there and you go back to... Paris Island sure did and you what's the the drill instructor school like or do what how long is that and what kind of
1: uh it was nine weeks all right and I I I, I can't say for how the selection criteria goes now but back then the way it worked is number one you volunteered yeah the vast majority of all drill instructors are volunteers they want to do that um a few marines You know, especially staff and COs, if they've been trying to hide or, you know, they didn't really want to be a drill instructor, but it gets to the point in their career they got to do something. Sometimes the Marine Corps will, guess what? You're going to DI school. You know, you're going to be a drill instructor. And then, of course, we get to the school, you're a drill instructor. If you don't, then, you know, your career is basically ruined. Me, I volunteered. And I was a sergeant at the time, an E-5 sergeant. And uh, you, you get a psychological exam. You get... You know, they check your records and you get command endorsements and everything, Mm -hmm. and you know, and you PT your butt off, try to get in shape, and uh, it's never enough. And then you uh, report to DI school. The Marine Corps actually has a school for drill instructors. Okay. And it was probably the toughest freaking thing, you know, I did in the Marine Corps, both physically and mentally. They don't treat you like a recruit. You know what I mean? But you're essentially going through sort of a boot camp again. Yeah. But they're teaching you how to teach. And uh, they put a lot of...
0: Essentially, uh, they're ripping you back down and building you back up again.
1: Yeah, sort of. You know, yeah. sort of. Um, they don't have to, you know, yell at you. They don't have to, you know, you know, treat you like a recruit. You know what I mean? Yeah. They're going to say, this is the standard. This is what you got to do. Um, this is a time you got it in. You know. Oh, by the way, you have to accomplish this, this, and this, and you'll be here at such and such a time. Yeah. You know what I mean? And so all the stress is basically self-induced. Yeah. Because they give you more than what you can humanly handle. Yeah. And uh, but and and drill. They teach you drill, 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 drill. Because it's one of the hallmarks of discipline for the Marine Corps. Yeah. You know, it was drill and you got to be perfect you know in every
0: single way every
1: single way uniform bearing command voice knowledge yeah of of the sop um because nothing in boot camp or uh, in recruit training you have the standard operating procedure yeah and that is the bible okay that's the burning bush that's the um the you 10 know, commandments my every, god that's yeah. it and there is no tolerance for violating that, and there's a little history behind that SOP too. But when I was there, um, it was probably about maybe two and a half inches thick. Yeah, I I would imagine now it's probably three or four inches thick. Yeah, know? it's probably on an Excel file on a oh computer my somewhere that's you know 14 yeah. gigabytes. And you got to memorize it practically, yeah. you know. And if you can't memorize it, you better know how to find it. Yeah. Because uh, you're going to be held to it, and you're tested on it constantly. Yeah. And um,
0: And I'm sure every recruit – do they call them platoons or classes or – Platoons. Platoons. Yeah. And I'm sure every platoon is different in some way the way you got to do it to a point. It's all the same basis but going on from there. Yeah, exactly. And another thing that I've noticed with with Marines is, aside from the birthday tradition, is the the history uh, in teaching – marines that history yes. you know the bella wood the Guadalcanal, all of those different times in the marine corps past absolutely is being taught you know the the you you read last night i was reading about chesty puller oh yeah and um there's a list of mile long but chesty's probably of you know, what five navy crosses yep and
1: it's probably the most famous marine in yeah. the marine corps and, and we got a few famous ones. You know?
0: <laughs> and uh, you know, everybody says we pray to Chesty. Yeah. Every night, and and uh, you've told me that before.
1: Yep, it's one of the things we do in boot camp. It's nothing's written down. Nothing says you know you will do it. You know, it's just something drill instructors do. Yeah. You know, I did it with all my recruits. You know.
0: And uh, back to the I'm gonna read. So a good friend of mine in the Marine Corps, um, every year on the birthday he he posts a birthday message. Nice. And I'm gonna find it right now and I'm gonna read it to you because every year it's it's just hilarious yeah. and, and and this is what it was this year. So here we go. Two hundred and forty five years. Here we go, gents. Two hundred and forty five years of making other branches envious of our cult like behavior. <laughs> 245 years of laying waste to the enemies of mankind and good people. Happy birthday, you hard-charging, commie-killing, skull-fucking, chow-hall-attacking, beer-drinking, rip-it-pounding, whiskey-slurping, dress-right-dressing, Copenhagen-dipping, rocket-launching, MRE-eating, um squad automatic, weapon humping, dirty Afghan Iraqi, wadi jumping, 14-hour gun cleaning, and just just the list goes on and on. And just, I'm in awe of that tradition.
1: Yeah, that kind of sums it up. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, I could have said it better myself.
0: Yeah. It's, uh, looking back, you know, so you go into the drill field, and
1: how long do you do that for? Uh, Back then, it was a two-year tour. Yeah. Yep.
0: And, and that's all you could do. Yeah,
1: yeah, that's that's all they would let you do because after two years. You're mentally just. Yeah, you're just friggin' that's it, you're done. Yeah. You know. Um, now, I hear it's a three-year tour, yeah. but you do two years on the street with training yeah. recruits, and then you move into what we used to call quota, which is drill instructors that are pulled from platoons, you know, for like a little R&R, they'll give them, you know, you'll teach history, you'll, yeah. you know. When I went on quota, I went to um, uh, support battalion, which is in, I uh, became a repel master, so Mm -hmm. I taught repelling, and uh, grenades, pyrotechnics, uh, night vision, you know, I taught, that's what I taught. Yeah. And uh, I did that for just about the end of my tour. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, moved on from there. But, uh, yeah, it's two years. It was two years from the end I was ready to go. Yeah. You know, it's it's probably one of my most one of my greatest accomplishments, you know what I mean? Yeah. To be a marine drill instructor, that's pretty freaking special. Yeah, anybody I mean, I looking back when
0: when I met Mandy, you know, she said my father was he was in the Marine Corps for twenty years and a drill instructor, I'm like, holy shit You know. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so it's it's kind of it, it puts an extra weight on my shoulders thinking you know, at that time, it, well, I wasn't really thinking it, but, you know, my future wife's yeah. father is somebody that, you know, could kill me and still could kill me, if need <laughs> be. Uh, yeah. And uh, so after you do your tour to use as a drill instructor, where do we go from there?
1: Uh, I would ahead I did not want to go back to Aviation yeah. Supply. And
0: so you have that choice to I, go? I did, because
1: yeah. where I was in the amount of time I was in, and coming up on reenlistment, I was eligible to uh, make a lateral move to another MOS. Yeah, and uh, I chose EOD, Explosive Ordnance Disposal. And how that came about is I didn't even know what EOD was. Um, to back up a little bit, when uh, remember I said I was in support yeah. battalion, and uh, my, the last part of my tour in the drill field, and one of the things the Marine Corps for years and years had a moratorium on throwing live grenades at recruit training. And we got a new commandant in, uh, Al Gray. You got to Google him sometime. Yeah. A fascinating guy. really, really good commandant. And uh, matter of fact, if you ever, which, you know, every single official portrait of the commandants, and every commandant has an official portrait or picture.
2: Yeah.
1: His is in camis with a canteen cup. All right? Utilities, greens, yeah. camouflage. And uh, all the rest of them are in their dress blues or mess dress mm-hmm. or this. You know, he was a warrior. He was. Vietnam veteran. And uh, Al Gray said, "Ah, this is bullshit. How come recruits are not throwing live grenades in training? And so he reinstituted at the Corps. And I happened to be at the right place at the right time. So me and one other Marine, we went to the grenade range in Paris Island, rebuilt it, came up with the SOP, came up with the training. Um, And uh, for like seven months or so, Seven eight months, um, I was throwing live in a grenade pit yep. with recruits throwing live grenades, that's and uh, yeah, that's a uh, that's a lot of stories there. I never had one drop it in the pit. I've never had one you know go crazy on me or nothing. But we had some close calls. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh, anyway, you get a dud grenade goes off, you know, because it's a, a basically a timed fused. Yeah. You know, device. You got to wait thirty minutes. So, we'd uh, you know if a kid throws or a kid if a recruit throws a, a grenade, it doesn't go off. Then uh, you got to hunker down inside the the pit. You wait thirty minutes, and then EOD comes out and they clear it. Well, being a hard charging psycho that I am, you know, I I got yeah. good with the EOD guys, and uh, they it got to the point where they let me go out and put the charges on the grenades, and you know, because we just blow them in place. Yeah, and uh, Yeah, so I kind of got interested and got to talking to them. I said, yeah, I think I want to try out for EOD. Yeah. And I did. You know, I had the ASVAB score. Um, They checked my records. I had to get interviewed by an EOD team. Mm -hmm. And I had to go to – I went to uh, Buford Air Station, Marine Corps Air Station, Buford. Yeah. And uh, the EOD EOD team there and got interviewed and reenlisted for EOD. And then, uh, yeah, went to school. In Indian Head, Maryland in 1988, I think it was, beginning of, right around the beginning of 88, I guess it was. And that was six months long. Wow. And that was a tough, tough school. Yeah. Very tough school. And, uh, yeah, it's a lot of good memories, um, a lot of studying, you know, because I've never been strong in math. Yeah. And I tell you, especially by the time I got the nukes, it was, holy shit. Yeah. You know, you're plotting, um, you know, X amount of rads, rems at friggin' 40 miles based yeah. on wind direction, humidity. And, you know, so it was, it was pretty tough. But uh, EOD is, the EOD school is a joint service school. Yeah. It's a Navy school, but it trains all the services in EOD. And uh, so... I was a senior sergeant in the in the class so I became the class leader. We also had an army captain who was a West Point graduate. You would never know it though. And then we had a uh, a second lieutenant who I don't know. It looked like he was 19. Yeah. You know, and then the rest of them were all army guys. Yeah. Young uh privates or specialists or whatever, you know. And uh me and uh one of the marine was was in that class. And uh, I was a class leader for all of them. So that was my first introduction to leadership, yeah. to other services, you know, over other, other services. So that was a character-building experience, yep. you know. But, uh, yeah. So six months there, and then yep. you go to a, a, a duty station? Yep. Okay. I graduated, got my uh, EOD badge, yep. and uh, sent to Okinawa for a year. Wow. Yeah, unaccompanied, no wife. So that, I mean, that right there, you just...
0: I mean, that's a whole other podcast, I'm sure, dealing with that. But uh, young wife, you're young at the time, and, I mean, the stresses of that. I mean, I know mom very well at this point, and she's tough.
1: Yeah, well, our first child uh, was born right after I graduated EOD school. Yeah. So mom was pregnant while I was in school the whole time. And that was a, another extra incentive not to screw up and get rolled back. You know what I mean? Yeah. You had to pass first time. Pass first time. If you don't pass first time, you better be passing the second time. Or yeah. You're going to be on a review board. And, you know, if you're lucky, they'll roll you back a month or whatever yeah. it was to go through the, that portion of the course again. But mom was pregnant during that whole time. And then after I graduated and I came back to Yuma with orders for Okinawa. Yeah. Um, uh, Bradley was born, my son, yeah. and he died. Uh, from uh, a congenital heart problem. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, that just tore mom up. Yeah. You know, and, and me too, obviously. And so here I am, you know, she's sitting here, you know, she carried this child for nine months term. And, you know, and then two days later, you know, the baby dies in surgery. So we got medical bills. We got air ambulance bills. We have, you know, oh, by the way, I got to leave in two weeks to go to Okinawa for a year. I'm not going to see you for a year. And, you yeah. know. So, yeah, that added to the stress. That yeah. really did, yeah. But uh, yeah, we got through do it. If you ever
0: want to meet somebody that's tougher than a marine, meet their wife. Oh that, my god! That type yeah. of thing.
1: Oh, absolutely. <laughs> no, absolutely. No, yeah. absolutely.
0: And it shows. So you do your tour in Okinawa, mm-hmm. and then you come back. Is that when you go to Camp Lejeune? Or yeah,
1: I came back to uh, after Okinawa. I came back to, uh, or when I was in Okinawa, I was with the Ninth Engineer Support Battalion. That's where they put EOD. Yeah. For the ground side, on the air side, EOD teams were attached to what they call MALS uh, Marine Aviation Logistics Squadrons, and now it goes. They change it to uh, Marine Wing Support Groups, I, I believe. Marine Wing Support Squadron, and they're like combat engineers for Air Wing. And uh, I was sent to uh, MALS Twenty Nine at uh, Marine Corps Station New River, which is right there at Lejeune. Yeah, and uh, yeah, that's that's I spent. Uh, Let's see. Eighty nine to ninety three there. Yeah and then and got a where, chance. That's where Amanda's born. Yep. Amanda was born there at the Naval Hospital, Camp Lejeune. Kyle was born at Naval Hospital, Camp Lejeune. So that's a source of pride. You know, both her certificates yeah. mentioned Camp Lejeune. So
0: You know, They're definitely
1: it, Marine Kids. It
0: it throughout our relationship and, and Mandy, you know, when she said I was born at Camp Lejeune and I was like, well, my parents live in New Bern, and then talking to you, yeah, and it's kind of neat how all that stuff kind of played. And in the first time, her and I went to North Carolina, we got to go back and see the house that you you guys yeah. owned there, and and um, see the base a little bit, and all of these things I I knew of, but never realized how much later on in life it was going to mean mean to me, yeah, and. Um, so it's 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 all neat how that kind of works out. So and then after you leave Lejeune, you went. That's when you went to Eglin.
1: Yeah, we had the uh, the Gulf War during mm-hmm. that time um, came up. I deployed there in Saudi Arabia and as an EOD, as an EOD technician. Yeah, yep. And uh, yeah, we stayed pretty busy. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, how long was that deployment? Uh, five months. Five months. Yep.
0: Yep. Now and the war itself, the Desert Storm or Operation.
1: Desert Storm was was fairly quick. It was the 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 actual assault. You know, was what forty eight hours yeah. or seventy two hours or something like that. You know what I mean. And then we accomplished all our objectives. The thing about being an EOD there was there we had work. Um, we had missions. You know, yeah. before the war even started. I yeah. mean, we were lobbing artillery shells back and forth. You know. Yeah. And not for target practice either. Yeah, these are real fire missions. So. We had artillery that was shooting back and forth. Um, you ever hear the Battle of Kafji? I have, yes. Okay. Uh, I don't know anything about it, but I Okay, heard of well, it. Uh, Kofji is a Saudi Arabian town that's right on the border with Kuwait. Yeah. And, of course, Iraq occupied all of Kuwait yeah. at that time. And at one point, uh, we were moved up uh, to a place called Al-Mashab, and it was a auxiliary airfield, you know, and an air. C-130s used to come in and drop cargo off. You know, it, it, all hours the day, night, yeah. and whatever. And uh, they had a small, um, like drones. Mm-hmm. You know, the early drones we used to have. The Marine Corps had a small amount of those. And yeah. they, they were flying out of there. And uh, that's where we set up shop. That was our EOD base. And I was with a six-man team. And the Iraqis... One night we see there was this one highway that goes from Kofchi south right to Al Mashab yep. and then, you know, the rest of the way south away from Kuwait. And one night um, it was just wall to wall traffic. It's like it's like the mass holes on 95 going <laughs> home on a Sunday. <laughs> the you nice know what I mean? To this, yep. Oh my God. And uh, we're wondering what the hell's going on. Well, we find out that uh, they took a uh, an Iraqi tank battalion, went in, crossed the border, went into Kafji and tore it up. So now they attack Saudi Arabia, and we're only about maybe, I want to say, 30 clicks, you know, 30 yeah. kilometers away. And uh, the next morning, or maybe the morning after, this army major shows up. He's an ordnance officer, and he is a, an advisor to the Saudi National Guard, which is their version of their elite, you know. Okay. And uh, he says he's got some issues. You know, he's got ordinance all over the place. He's got destroyed vehicles that were hauling ordnance. You know, I really need some EOD support. And uh, he asked if we can, you know, help him out. My EOD officer, Captain Petronell, said, yeah, we'll, we'll help you out. He got permission from our people. And we uh, keep in mind, we're only a six-man team. Yeah. So we divide it up in, in teams of three. And uh, the NSYC was a uh, staff sergeant, Carabello. And he took two Marines. Um, and then Cap Pedernal and myself and another staff sergeant, we became the other team. So we would go into kofji you know, and uh, we were still catching sniper fire. And, and then, you know, days and weeks prior to that, we were getting rocketed. Yeah. You know, and uh, we had a pretty nice bunker, but uh, I don't think it's going to. Much good, you know what I mean, if yep. a rocket lands in it, but uh, yeah, so that uh, that was really really interesting, yeah, because we had to crawl through some hellaciously blown up tanks and armored personnel carriers. And any the Iraqis, they didn't have a logistics train, you know, so all their supplies or ammo, they're Projectiles resupplied. Everything was stuffed inside these vehicles. Yeah. So it just made it a bigger mess. Yeah. And when a tank full of uh, ammo takes a hit, you know that's a pretty big shock. Mm -hmm. So you 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 had to be very very careful. You didn't know, you know, what's armed and what isn't. Yeah. So we had to really be on our toes, and you know that's where training came in. But uh, it's a pretty stressful time. Yeah. You know it really was. Um, A couple. Couple of funny stories. How we doing on time? Go for it. <laughs> right. So I'm in this alley, and uh, it's, there's like only one way in and one way out. Yeah. It's like a not even a, 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 a what do you call it? A courtyard. Yeah. You know what I mean. And inside of this thing is a wrecked, trashed, burned out Iraqi tank that we had to get the ordinance and everything out of it. Okay. Now. I said we were on a six-man team. We only had one sergeant on that team. The rest of us were staff sergeants, and then the captain. The sergeant, uh, by T.O., he had a rifle. The rest of us, we have a forty-five. Yeah. You know that was our that was our pistols. That was our weapon. Yeah. So anytime my team went out, I always took the sergeant's rifle. Yeah. All right. So we'll have some kind of firepower with us. And uh, so here we are. I'm with this major. We got separated from the other two, and we're inside this courtyard, and he wants me to clean out this tank. Okay, I can't take this rifle into the tank, all right, because I mean, yeah. it's a small hatch, you know what I mean? And what am I gonna do once I'm in there? You know, it's, it's, just, it's just not feasible. And uh, so I'm standing there, you know, so, so I ain't getting in the freaking tank, you go, yeah. you know what I mean? Let me, I ain't getting up this rifle. Says, well, I'll take your rifle, Staff Sergeant. Like, Excuse me? <laughs> 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 you know? You know? I mean, this is like three stories up. That You know, we're windows, you know. I mean, we're like one round going through your head, you know. Shooting fish in the mail. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And we're pretty exposed, you know. And plus, our only way out of there is a fatal funnel to begin with. So, uh, I remember that because that's probably the first time I ever, you know, willingly gave up my weapon. Yeah. You know what I mean? And he covered me, and I climbed into the tank, and obviously it went okay because I'm sitting here now. Yeah, but uh, yeah, that was that was very very uncomfortable. I'm know? sure because I remember saying, "Hey, sir, I'm a Marine Staff and CO. You know, we don't give our weapons up, right? It's okay, Staff hard yeah. okay. You know, hey, you want to, take, I'll cover you." I says, oh, fuck. But you know, it, it worked out.
0: It's it's crazy. <laughs> I mean, to hear stuff like that, it's just. I mean now we're jumping back to me at that time I'm just a kid obviously yeah. and I and I remember bits and pieces of of that situation I remember my parents talking about it and maybe seeing a little bit on the news but yeah. I mean media was far less then so the coverage of it mm. was was far less and and then you know growing up through there obviously I mean I was as a kid I was infatuated with Firemen, policemen, that type yeah. of thing, and that's where I wanted to go. And right. and growing up, I remember I was sitting. This was so now we're way fast forward. I'm 2003. It's March. I was at church youth group, my parents' church, and I remember the the youth pastor telling us that the United States is going to war. This is when yeah. the United States was invading Iraq again. Yeah. Um, And I think that was Operation Enduring Freedom or, I, I can't, Operation Iraqi Freedom. Or, yeah, Iraqi um, Freedom, I think it was. And I remember thinking, well, in, the, in him saying, this is going to be, they're going to go in, they're going to take care of what needs to be done. And it's potentially, this is the first time in your generation that you're seeing yeah. war. And then to think 20 years later or yeah. almost 20 years later, we're still cleaning up that mess.
1: Yeah, exactly. And
0: it never really ended, I mean, even from when you were there, I don't think. And
1: Yeah, I mean, we still had terrorism, mm-hmm. you know what I mean?
0: And um, and obviously we, we were already in Afghanistan, but right. that was because of 9-11 and, sure. and after after that. Um, so after you, you come back from your deployment, how long were you in EOD for? Uh, Nine years. Nine years. Yep. And then you left there, and that's when you were back to? Yeah,
1: came back to to, uh, New River, Lejeune, mm -hmm. and uh, wanted to be an EOD instructor. And so by this time, uh, I got promoted to Gunny. I was a gunnery sergeant then. And uh, I got accepted, went to Eglin Air Force Base, which is the, back then it was called Phase 2 of, uh, or actually Phase 1 of the EOD school. Now, keep in mind, when I said, when I, when I originally went to EOD school, it was at Indian Head, Maryland. Mm-hmm. And I did my whole six months there. And now what they did is they eventually wanted to take, um, Indian Head, Maryland was shutting down, yeah. I guess. And uh, uh, they wanted to move the EOD school to Eglin Air Force Base in Florida. And they did it kind of incrementally. So <laughs> when I reported into Eglin Air Force Base, they would do, I think it's like three months with us, and then they would all go to Indian Head and finish out the next three months. Yeah. And uh, now it's all done right at Eglin. But that's the way it was when I did it. And that was in, uh, it went there in 93, became an uh, what they call a high-risk training instructor. Yeah. And... uh yeah, that was, uh, so I was a Marine Gunnery Sergeant at a Navy school on an Air Force base teaching Army students. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, all right, so that's, uh, yeah, you talk about culture, Yeah. Uh, you know, that's, yeah, that was, uh, wow, uh, great, great memories, though. I'll tell you this, man, I, I knew I wasn't in Oz anymore, all right, yeah. and that yellow footprint mm-hmm. path was bullshit, <laughs> So the day I check in to the school. All right, let me set the mood here for the, the the mood. All right, I'm in my pickup truck and there's a basically a four-lane highway. Yeah. that is uh, goes all the way from one end of the Eglin Air Force base to the other and where I was at, you got to get on that road and it you're on base. It's yeah. an Air Force road, you know, but it's four lanes. That's how big the base yeah. is. And it goes all the way to the under end, other end of Eglin Air Force Base, and that's where the EOD school was, where I had to check in. So I'm in my dress alphas, my greens, yeah. you know, the set, and I'm all squared away, and i got my records, and, you know, you, checking in anywhere in the Marine Corps, you got to be in dress greens. Yeah. And I'm in a pickup truck, and I'm driving along, you know what I mean? And all of a sudden, uh, I come in, like, a part of main side or whatever, and that kind of looks like a... Uh, headquarters building you know big yeah. skyscraper freaking eight story whatever whatever and a big flagpole in front and all of a sudden i hear doo, 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 doo. oh it's colors all right well so i stop. you know what i mean because on a marine base yeah when you hear the the bugle you know you hear colors you stop that's when they're raising the flag and uh nobody moves if you're Outside your vehicle, then you face the music, which is where the flagpole is, and you salute. All right. Did I mention I'm on a four-lane four, four lane highway? Yeah. Yeah. At a dead stop? All right. What do you think's going on around me? These friggin' Every,
0: Everybody else is slamming on their brakes.
1: Oh, yeah. And they're just like, you know, they're picking horns, and there's... Who the hell stops in the middle of the frickin' road? You know? <laughs> So, my first introduction to Air Force was is they don't do morning colors like the Marines do. You know what I mean? So I said, "Wow, that's just that's amazing." So and and maybe now it's changed. But a friend of mine was stationed at Eglin, yeah, and he told me about how they do colors. Yeah, now do they every evening or something? Oh wow! Maybe uh, if you're on that highway, maybe you don't have to stop. (laughs) <laughs> maybe, that, maybe that's what it was. Yeah. Um, anyway, so yeah, welcome to an Air Force base.
0: <laughs> so, how, how
1: long were you at Eglin for? Uh, four years. Four years. Yeah, ninety three to ninety seven.
0: So now you got two kids. You're yeah, a boy like, and a girl, and you're you know you're doing the family thing. Oh yeah it must be nice because now you're kind of, you're going to work during the day oh, and, you're, God, and yeah. you're coming home.
1: And a lot of times the vast majority of the time, if you're done by 1400 and you don't have to teach any classes, yeah. you know, you're done you yeah. go home, you know? So it was really, really family quality time. Yeah. And I was working with some really, really great guys and from all the services. Yeah. And, uh, my, uh, my division officer, um, my first division I worked in was biochem, mm-hmm. biological chemical. And, uh, uh, I had an Air Force captain that was my officer in charge of that division, and I had a uh, Air Force master sergeant that was my NCOIC.
0: Yeah.
1: And then when I moved to Corps, um, Corps Recon, that was uh, I was working for a senior chief of the Navy. Yeah. You know, and we all became just great friends. You know what I mean? We worked really well together, and I got it was fun. But uh, oh god, being a Marine gunny in that environment. Yeah. You know, and gunnies are you know just two points short of being psycho anyway, yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, it just had such a great time. That was yeah. probably some of the funnest times I had.
0: Yeah. You know? Now, obviously you like to shoot. Now, mm-hmm. did your, were you going to the range and stuff then and shooting or pro- all through your career up to this? point?
1: Uh, y- yes and no. Um, if you're in a fleet unit and you're not deployed, then uh, you're going to go to the rifle range at least once a year yeah. to qualify. Yeah. Now, certain duty um, that or certain uh, uh, jobs that you're doing, mm-hmm. you know, like when I was at EOD school, there's we got waivered. you know. You you didn't have to qualify because there's no way to, you could qualify, you yeah. know. Um, they're not going to pay the money to send you all the way to, you know, Quantico to, you know, use their range. Yeah. You know? So you're wavered for it. Um, when I was on a drill field, I think I was wavered for it. So that's two times in my career where I didn't have to, to qualify. qualify during that time. But all the rest of the times, you, you know. You're qualified to. every yeah. year. <clears throat> and I think, if I remember right, I think if, you, if it get, got to the point in your career where you're a gunnery sergeant or above past so many years, you don't have to qualify anymore. Yep. But uh, I remember qualifying all the way up as a gunny. And then uh, in 97, when I was still at the school, I was selected for first sergeant, okay. promoted. And uh, then I didn't have to qualify anymore. I used to go out with my Marines and shoot anyway, yeah. though, but I, it wasn't a requirement. So from Eglin, you then go to? First Sergeant's Academy. Okay. Yeah, yeah. that was uh, about 10 days, I guess it was. It was up in... Uh, Quantico, Virginia, Mm -hmm. and uh, that was pretty fascinating. It really was. Um, I wasn't slated to be promoted until like July of, I want to say July of 97 Mm -hmm. is is when my number was supposed to come up. But because I was going to a unit sooner than that, then I was what they call frocked. And what that means is you're given the stripes, mm-hmm. you know, and the responsibility, but you don't—you're not given the pay yet, okay? Because you're not officially promoted. Um, <clears throat> so I went to the first sergeant academy, just like a lot of other guys that I already had my first sergeant chevrons on, and you know, and that was my rank. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it was uh, very eye-opening. It was fascinating. They had two very senior sergeant majors um, that taught the course. And uh, I got a lot out of it. I really learned a lot. Yeah, as yeah. far as
0: leadership. And-
1: leadership, administration, uh, the relationship between, you know, uh, the officer and the first sergeant. Um, a first sergeant in the Marine Corps is a, is a, basically the billet is you are the senior enlisted advisor to the commanding officer. All right? At usually the company level. So, you have the same MOS as a sergeant major. Yeah, does you just you know don't have as many people. Um, but uh, yeah, so that a lot of it had to do with the relationship between you and your commanding officer, um, your responsibilities to your Marines. Um, a, a lot of it was uh, uniform code of military justice. I mean, I got trained in how to be the CACO officer. Yeah, these are the casualty assistants. You know, the Marine gets killed, you got to go to the door, and, you know, all the rules involved in that. I'm glad I never had to do that. But uh, we were trained on it because, you know, First Sergeant's going to be one of the first people they call. And, um, yeah, so it was was pretty eye-opening. Yeah. And then after that, um, we moved to California and went to 3rd Light Armored Reconnaissance Battalion in uh, 29 Palms, California for my last three years in the Marine Corps.
0: And now that... Battalion is where the LAVs came into play. That's, yeah, that's
1: that. it. Yeah, uh, yep. LAV twenty fives. Yep. And uh, which is a pretty fascinating vehicle. And these yep. are first generation, so Canadian built, I think they were. And uh, these were the the first ones the Marine Corps bought. Really, really good vehicle though. It's amazing what they can do. Yeah. Does they? Uh, what's the LAV
0: designed to do as far as a?
1: Basically, a job uh, like for... fast reconnaissance, Okay, you know, for the most part. That's how we used them. Um, the thing is, jeez, oh, man, I can't, can't believe I forgot. 18,000 pounds? 23,000 pounds? It's a big light armored yeah. vehicle, and it's got uh, eight wheels. Ooh. And the front two wheels articulate, you know what I mean, for steering. The thing will do about 60 on a highway. Okay. And it can go through some hellacious terrain, you know. I mean, I've seen it. Uh, it's just amazing what it can do. Um, they have the uh, gun variant, which is a twenty-five millimeter Bushmaster. Yeah. And then uh, we have a mortar variant, which is uh, the whole inside of the EOD or the the LAV is opened up. And they got a turntable with a eighty-one millimeter mortar mounted on it. Okay. They got a, a tow variant tracked optical wire for anti-tank. They have a, um, uh, what we call a C-square. It's a command and control vehicle, where the whole inside has four chairs. I think it's four chairs, and you get all banks of radios and stuff. That's for coordinating fires mm-hmm. and this, that and everything else, for close air support. And, uh, what else? Recovery vehicle. Yeah, and they used to have an air defense variant. We didn't have those. We weren't an air defense unit. But, uh, yeah it's it's pretty spectacular i spent uh i was lucky both the commanding officers that uh, I served under they wanted their first sergeant out in the field yeah and I wanted to go anyway, so that worked out good yeah. you know so a lot of the first sergeants in the battalion they just stay back when the comp- their their company goes out in the field or whatever but I was always out in the field with my marines that's awesome yeah it was uh, you know I loved it. How many marines were you in uh, <coughs> were you in command of uh <coughs> The most Marines I had on my alpha roster, I believe, was 148. So that's 148 bodies that you're responsible for. You know what I mean? That's crazy. Oh yeah, yeah. But uh, and you gotta you gotta depend on your you know your your uh, your staff sergeants, your yep. sergeants, your corporals. You know. Um. Yeah, it just uh, it became challenging. You know? I'm sure. At times. And it
0: probably wears on you as you're getting towards the end of your career anyway. Yes, Physically, it was. mentally. Sure. All those things. Yeah. So you do that so that was your final three years of Marie Corps. It was, you know? Yeah. And then you retire. Yeah. And uh did you when you retired, did you come back to Maine immediately? I did. Yeah. yeah.
1: yeah so you I came
0: did. and settled in Sanford where you're at now?
1: I did. Yeah. Bought a house and that's where we've been ever since. Yeah. You know, that was in uh July. May. I had some leave, terminal leave built up, so I think I came home in May of yeah. 2000. And then mom and uh, Amanda and Kyle, plus the rabbit and a <laughs> bunch of other stuff, they uh, they came out, they came home around July, beginning of July, okay. end of June, beginning of July, something like that. So she finished packing up the house, finished up the kids at school, and you know, when I came here, got a job, bought a house, and Or pick the house out, anyway. Yeah. Yep.
0: Now, what was the transition for for you coming out of the Marine Corps and going into a... Well, what did you do when you got out of the Marine Corps for everybody listening at home?
1: Yeah, I went straight into nuclear security (laughs) at uh, Seabrook Station in New Hampshire. Seabrook, New Hampshire. Uh, Yeah, I did not handle my retirement very well, you know, because I... I did 20 years at 100 miles an hour, you know, and then now that you're in civilian life, it's expected that you act like you're in civilian life, you know, and of course, I didn't handle that part very well at all, and so I had some issues, but uh, yeah, and I carried with them a a long, long time, and it just, uh, it kind of made a very, very tough, you know, transition. And uh, I'm sure it did make it easy for my wife and kids, Uh, you know. But uh, it, uh, you know, to to jump ahead, it finally got to the point where after 13 years at Seabrook, I, you know, climbed as high as I could in the security field. I was a range master, was weapons instructor for all the organic weapon systems we had. Uh, Training supervisor, you know, did all that. Um, Went to some really excellent shooting schools. Became very freaking proficient, you know what I mean, in, in all the weapon systems. And and I love teaching, Yeah, you know. And being a range master, that's that was – because there's so much responsibility, you know what I mean, that I just – I kept – it just felt really comfortable because it was almost like being in the Marine Corps again. Yeah. You know what I mean, as far as the that adrenaline. That leadership I mean? yeah.
0: position. And
1: exactly. Because uh, a range master, it's, nobody outranks you. I yeah. mean, anything that happens or fails to happen, it's on you. Yeah. So – I really craved that responsibility and accountability and stuff. But uh, 13 years, I did that 13 years at three months, two days. I left Seabrook and went to uh, kind of checked out for six, seven, eight months or yep. whatever, you know, and then uh, decided, well, shit, I got to work again. So I went to, uh, went into corporate security. Yeah. I worked that for Unum for two years, three years. Started out at, uh, what $10 an hour as a security guard and worked my way up to a system security manager yeah. so you know where I was making good bucks but uh, yeah that got to the point where I hated those effing people more yeah. than I hated the people that you know yeah. running Seabrook so I left that and uh, now I'm once I left there I finally recognized that something's wrong mhm and uh, it just it, i had to go see somebody, yeah. I had to, so that's when I walked into the VA, and then my life was changed for the better after that, yeah. And uh, now I'm at my twilight job, you know. Um, I don't want to say on the air where I work, but yeah, it's uh, it's it's low stress, it's low key. I'm not responsible for anybody, I'm not in charge of anybody, yeah.
0: Um, you punch your clock, in, that's it, and you,
1: yep, and as. Uh, your wife says to me, she says, you know, Dad, just stay in your lane. Yeah, you know, and that's what I've been doing. So,
0: and and as me, you know, I and we've talked about this stuff before, and mm-hmm. and 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 to see, you know, six years ago when I met you, yeah. just wow, it's because in that long, yeah, <laughs> holy shit, just wow, because of the person that you are, it was. You never really noticed it, yeah. But as I talk to you more, you you would you felt more comfortable in telling me, and and obviously yeah. it brings us here now. Um, but to see how far you've come in that light yeah. is is amazing on on my side of it,
2: wow, and
0: okay. and to just because it really is an accomplishment. We all have our stressors and our, and our ways that we deal with stuff and. Yeah. You know, I never really, <clears throat> I've never had any traumatic stress, we'll say, um, but after meeting you and starting shooting with you and stuff like that, it's never, I've never really enjoyed shooting more until then. Mm. I've always been interested in doing yeah. it, but the the one thing that you've always said is safety is the number one. Yeah. And it is. And, sure. and, and, and sh- being on the range with somebody like you you could portray that in so many aspects of life yeah you know later on down the road and and uh happy to see where you've come and 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 that's a uh, incredible and an honor for me to be able to share that you know that we've been recording for an hour and 20 minutes and, wow. it, and it feels like 10 minutes yeah um how we've been going through it and so on my behalf thanks for being my first guest and uh, it's been a pleasure and an honor, and it won't be the last time you're on this podcast because Perfect. as we go on, I'm going to – and anybody that's listening, um, I, I named it The Grateful American because that's what I am. Yep. And I always have been, and I think, like you, there's, there's people out there that may want to tell their stories. Absolutely. And I'm here to listen and you're here to listen, and be we're back. all going to be here to listen. And uh, if there's one thing you could say to anybody exiting out of the military or transitioning out of the military or law enforcement or public service of any type, what what was one piece of advice that you could give them after your journey that you've
1: gone through? If If you come out of the service and you've served in combat, all right, either in a zone where you actually saw combat, or in combat itself, you know what I mean. You really, really need to go see the VA. You really do. You got to get that in there. You got to, got to, you got to talk about it. Yeah. Um, the suicide rate from Iraq and Afghanistan veterans is just horrible. Yeah. Um, the VA is so much better now than what it used to be. You know, especially back in my day when I first came in, um, and then you know they, they didn't really have you know PTSD um, counseling or stuff like that for for Gulf War veterans. Yeah. and it wasn't until you know Iraq and Afghanistan were uh, uh, they really you know improved things. So I would say, hey, you know, don't be ashamed, don't be shy about it, don't be embarrassed. All right. It doesn't make you less of a badass. Yeah. It doesn't make you less of a marine. You know. Just uh, go. Go to the VA. You know. Get it on record and get yourself squared away. Don't go through what I did. You
0: know. And if there's somebody you need to talk to, message us at, on my podcast or yeah. mainly stupid, and
1: absolutely. I'm sure you
0: talk to anybody that needs help.
1: You betcha, absolutely.
0: And with yep. that, um, I think that's kind of where we'll end it. Perfect. And uh, I want to thank everybody for listening. This is obviously my first episode. And i um, not quite sure when the next one's going to come out, but it will. And I want to thank our veterans. The happy birthday to the Marine Corps. Um, tomorrow's Veterans Day. Thank all of our veterans, past, present, and future. Absolutely. Uh, yep. Public service workers, firemen, paramedics, police officers, without you we're not sitting here doing this podcast at any time and uh, That's right with that I'm Hugh McDougall and we've got Fred Levine with us and uh, we're the grateful Americans
1: absolutely good night
0: thank you.